0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Historical Paranormal Podcast. I am super glad to be joining you. I just got some annoying news that I will be in a cast much longer, so you won't see me out and about around town anytime soon. Um, That's always aggravating because I mean, I can barely walk, so, and even then, I'm not really walking, so it just really, really sucks. Um, Not to complain because I'm also getting a lot of time to catch up on stuff that I couldn't before, so that's always a good thing. So I really can't complain too much. Um, oh, I want to, <laughs> but I won't. So I did have a chance to. I actually did show notes for two episodes. Only the first one that I was writing was just I was bored to tears, and I was like, if I'm bored then I'm sure my listeners would be bored listening to me talking about it. Cause you can tell when somebody's really passionate about a subject or at least really interested. And I changed track like halfway through or about three quarters of the way through on this other one. And I might still publish that episode at one point soon because while it may be boring to me, it may be not, may not be boring to others, but in any case, I switched to this story because when I first heard it years ago, I was horrified. I mean, there are so many nuances to it once I really did a deep dive, but there's, there's still some gross stuff in there and just no reason that it had to go to the level that she took it. So let's get on into it. Today, we are covering the soap maker of Correggio or Leonardo Chanculi. And this is going to be a couple things. So, a couple warnings. One, I may terribly mispronounce some names. Let me know; I will correct that for future notice. I'm going to try my hardest, and I, th- I think I'm okay with it, but we'll see. Second warning is that we are going to be discussing a couple of cases of sexual assault. So, fair warning, that is coming up, and while it is important to the story, it's not central to it, so you can definitely skip past that. All right, let's get into Leonardo Chanchuli. And first, I'm going to say... I love soap, and it's such a weird thing to say because everybody likes soap, but I am a fan of clean talk on TikTok, so I love the idea of a sudsy wash, be it hand washing or otherwise. Honestly, I've loved watching them even clean toilets because it's so interesting. I hate when they do the chemical dumps, like all the different cleaning products. That's not my favorite thing. Just clean something. It's satisfying. I don't know why. Uh, And it also makes me want to clean my entire apartment, just like scrub it clean. So it's a good thing. Um, when I researched the story, though, I got to thinking about soaps that don't foam or froth. And I have an aunt that goes to Italy frequently. I've talked about her before. And she used to bring back these beautiful olive oil soaps. They smell delightful and, you know, olivey. but I couldn't get past how waxy they were. I just never felt clean when I used them. And that's probably because I'm used to all the chemicals like sodium lauryl sulfate And things like that, that froth and foam and make me feel all squeaky clean, but are not great for me. And after reading the story, I cannot get the thought of waxy, non-foamy soap out of my mind, which is creeping me out. Thankfully, I don't have any right now. But anyway, that brings me to your favorite friendly neighborhood Italian soap maker, Leonarda Cianciulli. Leonardo was born on April 18th, 1893, in the town of Montella Avellino. Her mother had been raped and had married her rapist. And actually, let's discuss that for a second. Here's where the, the trigger warning comes into play. At this point in Italy, being raped was considered a crime against public morality, as opposed to a personal attack on a person. And I'm referring specifically to Article 544 in Italian law, which made clear the idea of marriage as rehabilitation. For example, an Italian woman would be seen as losing her honor if she were raped. To restore her honor, she could marry her rapist, because it's all her fault, right? But anyway, um, if he were to marry her, it would stop any legal action the woman or her family could take against him. And he would be seen as a rehabilitated man. This was famously challenged in 1966 by Franca Viola. Before you think like nobody, nobody said anything about this. Someone definitely did. So a former boyfriend of hers with ties to the mafia had her kidnapped after she was in a public relationship with another man. Now, to be clear, she broke it off with this guy. She had moved to Germany. Uh, When she came back, she got into a relationship with her childhood sweetheart. So, Instead of just taking no for an answer, he got increasingly violent. And then one day, when she firmly said no, um, he and five others took her, like kidnapped her from her home, took her to a barn outside of the town of Alcalmo, where she was raped repeatedly for over a week. The Italian government pressured her to marry her rapist, and she flat out refused. She and her family, who stood solidly behind her, were subjected to menacing, persecution, taunting, and arson during the trial, but they did not back down. To their credit, they did not back down from that. And to be clear, when I say the Italian government, I really mean the local Sicilian government, but this was something that was done all over the country of Italy. So while we are talking about Sicily here, it was absolutely the norm in the whole country. So her ex-boyfriend was convicted after they took them to court and sentenced to 11 years in prison. The other five guys just got off, like, totally acquitted. But he did serve his years. Once he got out, he was killed by the mafia for unknown reasons. So probably, you know, I don't know. I don't want to say a good thing because it's never good when somebody is murdered execution style the way he was. But I will say, you know, some things take care of themselves. So... Franca married her childhood sweetheart, had three kids with him, and still lives in Alcalmo. And he was very clear. People said, well, why do you want to marry someone who's not a virgin? I mean, you know she's damaged goods. And literally, they didn't say damaged goods, but they said, you know, why do you even want to marry her, you? And he said, you know, I've loved her since I could remember, and I'm going to love her until I die. And it was just the sweetest thing. So this trial was monumental with both the Italian president, Giuseppe Sargat, and Pope Paul VI supporting her in her fight. And she was even invited with her husband to a private audience with the Pope after her marriage. Public sentiment being what it is, however, the law wasn't actually changed until 1981, and rape was not legally viewed as a personal attack until 1996. So while Leonardo's mother marrying her rapist sounds awful, know that it was legally sanctioned, and she was probably heavily pressured into doing it. That being said, her mother resented Leonardo and never passed up on an opportunity to let her know this. The rapist died when Leonardo was a toddler, and she and her mother were thrust into extreme poverty. While she did remarry a few years later, the changes were just too drastic for Leonardo to cope with on her own, and she attempted suicide several times as a young girl. And it was at this point that she had started becoming superstitious and began seeing fortune tellers. Since mental health, especially for the poor, wasn't really paid attention to, Leonardo's mother decided to arrange a marriage to a wealthy man to get her off her hands, but also to increase her own lifestyle. In 1917, when Leonarda ran away to marry a register clerk named Raphael Pansardi, instead, she claimed that her mother was so angry at her that she cursed them. Maybe that didn't happen. Who knows? I mean, a lot of the things that she said, I'm not sure about, but maybe her mom knew it would really damage her mental state to believe that she was cursed. I mean, She was clear that her mom was emotionally and physically abusive to her growing up. So it would not surprise me that she said that knowing that it would mess with her. But her mom could have also believed in curses deeply herself and really meant to curse her daughter. We'll never really know. So regardless of why it happened, Leonardo was haunted by this idea and dwelled on how her mother's curse would play out for the rest of her life. It's no surprise here. That the newlywed couple wanted to leave Montella for Raphael's hometown of Loria Potenza. In Loria, Leonardo's luck was just as bad though. She was pregnant 17 times, losing many children to miscarriage and others to childhood diseases. So in the end, only four of her 17 children lived. As you can imagine, making a living was incredibly difficult with so many mouths to feed, and Leonarda ventured into some illegal financial deals to make ends meet. Unfortunately, as it tends to do, the law caught on, and Leonarda was imprisoned for fraud in 1927. After her release, she and her husband moved their family to Lacedonia. Unfortunately, they still struggled financially. And when an earthquake hit the town in 1930, they lost everything and were forced out onto the streets. With no life left in Lacedonia, no house, they ended up moving to Correggio, Reggio Emilia in hopes of a better life. And for a time, they absolutely achieved this. Leonarda opened up a soap shop that was popular with the town, and money, while tight, was enough for them to live on. As an avid believer in fortune tellers, palm readers, and astrology, Leonarda, of course, got her fortune told while she lived in Correggio. She even became known as a fortune teller herself, with customers coming to buy soap and get their fortunes told at her shop. During one palm reading, however she was told that none of her children would survive. The reader also told her that she saw prison on one hand and a criminal asylum on the other. She was definitely disturbed by this, as any person would be, I think. But she asked the reader what she could do to stop this fate, and I'm not sure whether the reader told her this or maybe another practitioner, it's not totally clear, but her answer, or someone's answer, was human sacrifice, as it tends to be. So this could be something also that Leonarda came up with herself, because it's, again, not quite clear how it happened. But let's, let's look into it. Given that she had lost 10 pregnancies and had to bury three young children, it's possible that she was suffering from a deep depression and was not in her right mind during any of the following events. So I want to say that before we get into this, because online, it's often reported that she was just mean. She just liked doing what she was doing. And I think that's partially true, but we have to take this into account. That amount of loss of children, of loss of yourself, even, um, I can't imagine, and I can't imagine coming through it a normal sane person. So, let's just keep that in mind before we move on. So, of her four children, her favorite was her oldest son, Giuseppe. And he had told her right after all this that he was enlisting in the Italian army to do his part for his country during World War II. Now, we know Italy wasn't exactly on the right side of history in World War II, but let's just skip over that for now because it really has no bearing on the story. So she thought this was a death sentence, and I would, not be, I would not disagree with that at that point. And with the way that her life had gone thus far, this, it wasn't exactly far-fetched to think that. Not only was the war wretched, any war is wretched, but given all of her loss in the past, I would totally, that's exactly the connection my mind would make as well. So it was then that she made her decision to start sacrificing women to save her children, namely her son Giuseppe. Her first victim was Faustina Setti, a middle-aged, unmarried woman who went to see her trusted fortune teller on a regular basis about finding a husband. It was this reason Leonarda used to lure Faustina to her shop one morning. She told her that she'd found a husband for her in Pola, which would be present-day Croatia, but that she couldn't share the happy news just yet with anyone. First, she had to write letters to her friends and family telling them that she'd gone to Pola to be with her new husband. Then when Faustina was in her shop, Leonardo served her a spiked drink that knocked her unconscious. And I've seen on some websites that it was labeled as wine. We're not sure. It was probably wine. Once down, Faustina was dragged to the back of the shop, murdered with an axe, and cut into nine pieces. While doing this, Leonardo collected the blood into several bowls and set them aside. Her body was dissolved in caustic soda, which is often used in soap making, until they turned into a dark mush and then poured down a drain. Her blood, which by this point had coagulated, was then baked dry in an oven, ground up and mixed with flour to make tea cakes for neighbors. We know this exact process because Leonardo was very explicit about it in court, even going so far as to share that she and Giuseppe had eaten the crunchy tea cakes as well. It was also said that she was the beneficiary of Faustina's life savings and was paid 30,000 lira for her services. Her next victim was Francesca Suavi. Leonarda told her that she'd found her a job at an all-girls academy in Piacenza, but that she had to leave right away. Again, she convinced her to write letters to friends and families, letting them know about the quick change in fortune, and that they wouldn't hear from her for quite some time. On September 5th of 1940, she invited Francesca to her shop and gave her a spiked drink to knock her unconscious yet again. She was killed and disposed of in the same way as Faustina, and Leonardo received $3,000 as the beneficiary of her life insurance. So starting to see a little pattern here. Her third victim, 53-year-old Virginia Cacciopo, was a former opera singer who once sang at Milan's La Scala Opera House. She too was in need of a job. And Leonarda told her of a wealthy and mysterious impresario in Florence who was in need of a secretary. By the way, I had heard that term impresario so often. I have heard it so often in the past. And I never really knew what it was. I just thought it meant like rich dude. So I looked it up and it's kind of like... um. A producer, like a film producer or a music producer. And so this was perfectly in line with what Virginia wanted. And she too was told to tell no one of the opportunity until it was time to set off. From what I can tell, letters in this case weren't sent off to her friends and family, telling them where she was going and that, again, she would not be heard from. So it could be that Leonardo was getting lazy in these murders because The others had seemingly gone so well. On September 30th, Virginia entered Leonardo's shop, never to be seen again. But her murder was different. And I'll let Leonardo's testimony speak for itself on this one, because it is a doozy. She ended up in a pot like the other two. Her flesh was fat and white. When it had melted, I added a bottle of cologne and after a long time on the boil, I was able to make some most acceptable creamy soap. I gave bars to neighbors and acquaintances. The cakes, too, were better. That woman was really sweet. This was the most well-to-do of Leonardo's victims, as she reportedly got around 50,000 lira, jewels, public bonds, and her clothing and shoes. After selling the jewels and the clothing, which she absolutely did do, she must have made a pretty good amount of money and been pretty happy in her choices. But her clumsy mistake with the letters was going to prove to be her end. Virginia's sister did not believe that she would just disappear without saying goodbye or even leaving a note. And what's more, the last place that she'd seen her go was Leonardo's soap shop. And being a woman of action, she went immediately to the police and Regia Emilia. The evidence or the circumstantial evidence was enough to have Leonardo arrested and brought to the police station. And initially, she denied any involvement with the women and stated that while Virginia had visited her shop, she only bought something and left. It wasn't until police told her that they were convinced her son Giuseppe had something to do with the murders that she told the truth. And you know what? I'm not convinced that he didn't have something to do with it. At least that he he knew about it. I think he may have known about it. I mean, she fed these cakes to her son. It very well could be that she thought, okay, the human sacrifice only makes sense. If he eats part of it, who knows? Um, But it's possible that he knew. Again, we will never know. During her trial, she was oddly proud of her crimes. And reading some of her statements, you can tell how clever she thought she was in baking her victim's blood and mixing it into cake flour. She took particular pleasure in letting the court know at times, even correcting the prosecution about the saponification process and a couple of other details on the case. I love that word, by the way, saponification. That is fun. In the end, Leonarda Cianciulli was sentenced to 30 years in prison and three years in a criminal asylum, proving that some palm readers are accurate. She died of a cerebral hemorrhage on October fifteenth, 1970. So, all in all, here's my take on it. While I think that mental illness and superstition really had a lot to do with her actions, Her behavior after the fact shows that she was fully aware of right and wrong. The fact that she relished in the murder of vulnerable women was a key factor in my thinking that she wasn't only proud, she was narcissistic about her abilities as a murderer. I could also see her not having a problem sharing details as she felt the murders were necessary to keep her children alive, no matter how much incarceration she would receive as a punishment. So, yes, depression was a major factor in this, I think. It's not spoken of at all in any of the articles that I've read, but just common sense tells me it was a thing and it made believing in all of this superstition easy. I mean, especially since this had been ingrained into her at an extremely young and vulnerable age. But then there is the other side of it. She really relished what she did. So, while I think she was depressed, while I think mental illness was a factor, I don't think she was criminally insane. Then again, who knows? (laughs) Um, In any case, that's the story of The Soap Maker of Coragio. I hope you enjoyed this story. It was very interesting to me. At some point, I'll get around to finishing the other one. It's long, and I mean, it's not necessarily boring. It's just not as interesting as some of the others. Maybe it is. We'll see. So make sure and follow me too on my Instagram. I am at historical paranormal, but also follow me on my TikTok. I finally got some videos up, and I am at the historical paranormal on TikTok. And I have my chartreuse and dark oxblood logo, so I'm pretty easy to find. So I have story of the hand of glory, I have stories of Victorian post-mortem photography. Um and yeah. I will throw in some new ones as soon as I find them, but it's going to be fun. Comment, let me know if you like them. I would love to hear from you. And if you have any stories that you're like, ah, it's too short, it's just not, it's not good enough for a whole show, or at least the subject matter isn't long enough for a whole show. Let me know on TikTok, DM me, because I love to sink my teeth into this research. All right, you guys have a lovely week and thank you again for listening. Bye.